Last week we talked about the gospel, the good news. What we call the ultimate good news. And of course we understand that to be the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this week I want to move on to look at a number of verses throughout chapters 26 through chapter 28 of Matthew and discover together, if we can, the infallible proofs that we have in the, in the scriptural record that affirm and assure us of the gospel facts as presented to us. And I'd like to begin by referring you to some great legal minds who have examined the evidence for the resurrection over the past couple hundred years. And I want to begin with a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. He authored the authoritative three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law and Evidence, in 1842. He's still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the area of legal procedure. He actually wrote the rules and evidence, the rules of evidence, basically, that uh, govern our legal system here in the United States. Simon Greenleaf was an atheist. At least he was until he accepted the challenge by some of his students to investigate the case for Christ's resurrection. He began to collect and examine the evidence, applying the rules of evidence that he followed in the courtroom as a Harvard Law professor, and he became convinced of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and finally wrote the classic testimonies of the evangelists. Secondly, Albert Henry Ross, who wrote under the pseudonym Frank Morrison, was an Englishman, a freelance writer, an advertising agent, a cinematographer, an astronomer. He, too, was an atheist. That is, until he set out to write about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to expose it as a myth, applying a keen legal mind and that of a scientist. He found it was a book he could not write. In fact, he came to believe as a result of his study that the resurrection was not a myth, but indeed happened. He eventually wrote a book entitled, Who Moved the Stone? I have a copy on my desk that I read again this week that I've had for many years. Convinced after his study that Jesus Christ indeed did rise from the dead. And then there is Lee Strobel. I'm skipping one, I know, but Lee Strobel was profoundly influenced by the writing of Albert Ross. And Lee Strobel, of course, is a well-known and award-winning journalist working for the Chicago Tribune as their legal editor. He was a graduate of Harvard Law School. His wife became a believer 
And he set out to disprove what she believed. There's been a movie made of that. I think the name of the Moody, name of the movie's been out for a while, probably on, uh, some sort of list you can get, rent or buy still. The name of the movie, I believe, was The Case for Christ. But in his attempt to disprove the resurrection and his interviewing notable scholars, biblical scholars, by his own study and the application of his own understanding of evidence, he too became a believer. He's written over 40 books, serves as a teaching pastor out in Texas, and Lee Strobel can be added to the list. And then there is Sir Lionel Lucklow. He died in 1997. Lucklow is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful defense attorney of all time. Having won, over the years, 245 consecutive acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II twice. He too applied his legal mind to the study of the evidence presented in the gospel to understanding what was really there concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His conclusion, and I quote, he says, I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And so we are here this morning to examine some of the same evidence that affected these great legal minds in their judgment and in their faith. Yet, we are doubters. All of us are afflicted at some level by doubts from time to time. Look at chapter 28, verse 17 for a moment. We're not covering this this morning. We'll look at it next week, but I just want to reference this. When Jesus appeared to the eleven, plus probably more, on a mountain in Galilee after his resurrection, it says in chapter 28, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful, some doubted. Yes, doubt afflicts unbelievers, obviously, who reject the truth, reject the evidence. But for those of us who believe and trust in Christ for salvation, we too, from time to time, struggle with doubt. Now, the kind of doubt that these great legal minds had to confront was what we might call factual doubt. They doubted the facts of the evidence. Now, the answer to factual doubt is the evidence, the facts. And that's what they examined, and that's what changed their minds. For the most part, all of us believe those facts, I would say. Probably all of us here this morning believe the facts we're going to look at. That 
should and does overcome factual doubt for those of us that have come to faith. But there's another kind of doubt. It's what might be termed emotional doubt. It's, it's the kind of doubt that kind of slips in on us and assails us when we're struggling with something in our lives. Some trial, some setback, some difficulty, some health problem, some disappointment, whatever it may be. And, and they are many in life. And each is unique to us as individuals. And when that happens, we begin to ask ourselves some questions. Well, does God really love me if he let this happen? Well, yet the scripture says that God loves us. Not only do we doubt, well, is, does God really love me? But we might have the doubt, well, are his promises really true? I mean, after all, the scripture says, God promises, I will not leave you nor forsake you. The scripture says, I will provide all your needs. I'll meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. Yes. Scripture makes many promises. My grace is sufficient for thee, the scripture says. And yet we wonder, based on our suffering at the moment, is that all true? When someone has... Factual doubt, it is the facts, the evidence they need. But when someone goes through these times in which we say, well, what if, what if, uh, what if God may, what if God doesn't really love me? What if, what if his promises are not true? They don't, they don't seem to be real at the moment. We're talking about our feelings. That's the kind of doubt that afflicts us because we are sinners by nature and we are human. In our weakness. It's a kind of doubt that was afflicting these people, these disciples in chapter 28 verse 17. It was a kind of doubt that was afflicting Thomas, John chapter 20 verses 24 to 29, when he said, I've got to see the, I've got to see the proof. But yet it is the proof, it is the facts, it is the same, the same cure that we need when we have emotional doubt. That those who doubt the facts intellectually need, we need the truth. We need to be reminded of the truth. We need to redirect our thoughts to the promises of God. We need confirmation again of the fact there is no reason to doubt the Bible. No reason to doubt God. No reason to doubt the gospel. For God so loved the world. He loved us. He's made many promises. No reason to doubt that. The cure then is the same. Ultimately for factual doubt as well as emotional doubt. The word of God. Paul wrote in Romans ten seventeen, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to refocus our minds. Absorb again the truth. Be reassured in our minds because our feelings, our emotions are getting the best of us. But the reality of it all is simply this. There is no reason to doubt 
the gospel. No reason to doubt the word of God. No reason to doubt God. And ultimately, the answer for all of that that we might doubt is right here before us in Matthew 26 to 28. Because if he died for us, he loves us. And we were worth dying for in his mind. He's provided eternal life through that means. And if he rose from the dead, he's guaranteed it. And all the promises he's made to us are true. So let's take a look at how the gospel is confirmed historically here in Matthew's record, the gospel of Matthew. And the first thing we're going to notice this morning as we look at a number of verses here is that the gospel is confirmed by the prophetic fulfillment we see here in the historical description of Christ's death and resurrection. The prophetic fulfillment. So we're going to look at a number of these quickly. I encourage you to write down the references the heading and the references as we go through these, so you can go back and make your own study and read at your own leisure, because we're going to be flying through this. But the first thing that we want to notice in reference to prophetic fulfillment is that the disciples' desertion of Jesus Christ was prophesied hundreds of years. As all of these were, the prophecies were made hundreds of years before the actual events were coming to pass here during the last week of Jesus' life and up through his crucifixion and resurrection. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little one. So Zechariah promised the desertion, prophesied, I should say, the desertion of his disciples. Zechariah 13, 7. Now look at Matthew 26 with me. Hopefully you'll have your scripture open there. Matthew 26, verse 31. On the eve of his betrayal and arrest, then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, but it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's exactly what happened. If you go on into the passage, down in chapter 56, or verse 56 of the same chapter. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook, forsook him and fled, just as Zechariah said. Then there's his death and resurrection, which he himself predicted, prophesied to his own disciples in Matthew 16, 21. Again in chapter 17, verse 9 of Matthew, another instance is recorded. Verse 23, and again in chapter 20, verses 18 to 19. And then right here in the passage we're looking at, chapter 26 and verse 32, the very next thing Jesus says, after saying they would all forsake him and flee, he says in verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. Over and over and over he told them, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise on the third day. But they could not really fathom it. They could not get beyond their emotional attachment, their emotional desire to see that kingdom happen in their day. They literally didn't hear this with their hearts, although they heard it with their ears. And then there is Peter's denial. 
Look again at chapter 26, verse 33, right here where Jesus answers Peter. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happens. Beginning in verse 39 and following. Don't you think if someone told you that you were going to make a tragic mistake, you were going to commit uh, a terrible sin uh, before the day was over, and you were just sure it was something you, you would never do, don't you think that maybe in the back of your mind you would say, well, maybe I better bolster myself, I better prepare myself, because I certainly don't believe I'll do that, but I want to make sure. But Peter was so sure, he was so full of pride, and he was so unprepared, and he never prayed in the garden and all that, and he was caught off guard by the two comments by those maids and ultimately the men, as we saw last week. Unprepared, but it happened just like Jesus said it was going to happen. And then there is Jesus' silence before his accusers. Matthew 53, excuse me, Isaiah 53, verse 7 predicts. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, going back to Matthew, at chapter 26, verse 62, before the Jewish authorities, Caiaphas, and the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And then before Pilate, in chapter 27, verse 12, we read this. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Now, he did answer Caiaphas when Caiaphas asked, Are you the Christ? And he did answer Pilate when Pilate said, the same, or presented the same question, but he never spoke a word in reference to the false accusations that were ultimately of no import at that point. No, they didn't, they didn't dignify an answer. Predicted in Isaiah, we see it exactly here in Matthew hundreds of years later. And then four more. His betrayal. Psalm 41. Verse 9, even mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he lifted up his heel against me. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Exactly what Judas was paid, predicted by Zechariah, hundreds of years prior, verse 13, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. <laughs> That's exactly what the priest did with the money. They used it to buy the potter's field, where Judas took his life. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord for the potter. That's exactly what Judas did. He, th he threw the money back into the temple. The priest collected and said, it's not, it's not legal, we take this blood money for the temple treasury, so they, they bought a field to bury Gentiles in. His betrayal predicted. Now we, we see the 
fulfillment in chapter 26 of Matthew at verses 14 and following. Here we read, I'll get there in a minute. Here we read. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Moving on then, now to his crucifixion. And for this, the prophecy, we're going to go to Psalm 22, verses 16 and 17. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. David wrote that hundreds of years earlier. David's hands and feet were not pierced. Who's he talking about? Prophetically, he's talking about Christ. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. It says Christ is speaking through David. I can count all my bones. They, they look and stare at me. Not a bone was broken in his crucifixion. They came to break his legs, but he was already dead. We'll come back to that in a minute. Predicted beforehand. Matthew 27, verse 35, very succinctly says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called, uh, excuse me, chapter 27. Too many chapters here to keep up. Chapter 27 and uh, verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. Which brings us to the next fulfillment. Going back again to Psalm 22 at verse 18, we just read it a moment ago. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Exactly fulfilled, Matthew 27, verse 35. The outer garment they they uh, gambled for because they didn't want to divide it among the soldiers when they destroyed the garment. And then his cry on the cross. For this we can go back again to Psalm 22, verse 1. What was that cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Exactly what Jesus uttered on the cross in Matthew 27 and verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked about the significance of that prior. We won't go back into it. Then his burial. His burial. In a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9, is the prophecy. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now look with me at Matthew chapter 27, at verse 57. Now when evening had come, this is after his death on the cross, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself, had also became a disciple of Jesus. He was actually a member of the Sanhedrin that condemned him, as was Nicodemus. But Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea were pretty much secret disciples. But he comes out now and says, hey, I want to give him a, a burial. I'll recognize who he was. He, he buries him as if he was a rich man, a royal personality, which he was. Otherwise, his body would have been disposed of at the city dump by the authorities. Now, Pilate lets him have the body. He commands that he go ahead and take it. Well, he was a member of that group that had demanded his crucifixion. He wasn't consenting to it. We don't even know if he was present when they did it. 
And so he takes, and in verse 60 we read, and, and, and laid it in the new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Just as Isaiah said it would happen. Over and over again, these are ten quick references in these chapters we've been looking at that show the prophetic fulfillment, and the prophetic fulfillment confirms the fact that there is no reason for doubt. But there's a second confirmation of this reality. There's no reason for doubt, and that is in the historical record. The historical record. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at these instances. First of all, there was supernatural confirmation of his death. Chapter 27, verse 45. says, now, in the sixth, now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. In the middle of the daytime, no natural phenomenon could possibly describe it. It became pitch dark. We discussed the significance of that and what God was doing and saying earlier. But just remember here, this affected the world. At least all the known world at that time. We know this from history and the early Christian fathers who wrote. One of them, Origen, reported a statement by a Roman historian who mentioned such darkness. Another church father, Tertullian, wrote to some unbelieving acquaintances, acquaintances about the unusual darkness that they had experienced and had taken note of. There's even a, a communication that was made from Pilate to the emperor Tiberius at that time that referenced the darkness. This was confirmed and has been confirmed over and over again in the historical record. Then there is his burial. His burial confirms his death. Now, first of all, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, where Paul says, well, I'll read that one. First, Paul says, I'll just quote it to you. Uh, now I won't be able to do that. So let me turn there and make sure I get it right. Uh, sometimes you go to do something you know and your mind just doesn't uh, necessarily want to cooperate. Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, says Paul, the good news. Well, what is that? This good news is what he comments on beginning at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this is the good news here. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. Well, then he says, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, why does he say he died according to the Scriptures, and he rose according to the Scriptures, but in between he says, and he was buried? Because his burial confirms his death according to the Scriptures. We've already seen how it was according to the Scriptures. What Paul was saying here is the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I know oftentimes we as Christians say, well, the gospel, that's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. If we want to be complete, we would say the death, the burial, the resurrection, and his appearances. Because as the burial confirms his death, it is his appearances after his resurrection that confirms his resurrection. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But the fact that he was buried proves that he died. <clears throat> it's a simple matter of logic that you only bury, only bury people that have died. Look at chapter 27, verse 54 again, and I don't know that we need to... Well, 
we'll, we'll start at Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion and those with him that were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. This is the people that were standing by. These were the German, or excuse, excuse me, forgive me, German people, uh, Roman people, the Roman guard, the, 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 the Roman soldiers who was there to carry out the crucifixion. They were executioners. And they knew he was dead. He said, ultimately, some of them probably came to faith if they understood what they were saying. And this was sincere, other than, than we can tell. On the surface, it would seem so. He was. He's dead. Why? Because crucifixion killed people. He was scourged before he was crucified. The cat of nine tails. The leather whip with nine strands of leather embedded with rock and metal that literally stripped his flesh off of his ribs and back. Many, many that were destined for crucifixion never survived that. But he survived that. He went to the cross. He was on the cross for six hours. And when the Jews finally said, well, you know, uh, we need to make sure there's nobody on the cross when the Sabbath comes, they came and said, well, maybe we better to break it, have the soldiers break his legs. Which is what they did to hasten death. Uh, the, the feet were nailed at the bottom and their body sagged on the cross. And the only way they could breathe the breath was to push up on those pierced feet to be able to get enough breath in their lungs to breathe. Otherwise, they would simply suffocate. And that was an incredibly cruel way to execute someone. Eventually, the pain and the scourging, the loss of blood, the shock, and all the rest left them with not enough strength to push up anymore, and they suffocated. Well, the Jews said, you know, we, we need to go ahead and break the legs because when they wanted to hasten the death, they would break the legs so they couldn't push up anymore and breathe. And so they did that for the two, uh, the two robbers. This is in 19 of John, verses 32 and 34. And what happened was, is they broke the legs of the, the two robbers. But when they came to Jesus, they said, he's dead. They didn't bother. But yet, just to make sure, the John 19 account says one of the soldiers took a spear and pierced his side. Now, listen, a professional executioner, a Roman soldier, knew exactly how to inflict a spear to bring about instantaneous death. He was already dead, though. But that was just double assurance. And then Joseph comes along, and he wants the body, and he collects the body, and he buries the body. Obviously... He was dead. The fact that he was put in a tomb, buried, proves his death. People just did not survive a crucifixion. Then there is the empty tomb. The empty tomb perhaps is the greatest confirmation of all of his resurrection. Look at chapter 27, verse 62. This is after his burial. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will arise. 
Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. The stone was rolled across where he was buried. The stone was sealed, probably with a wax substance of some kind, with a stamp of the Roman authority. And a Roman guard was set there to guard it. Now, how could the disciples possibly come and steal the body when it was guarded by an attachment of Roman soldiers? But you see, all they did to secure his body in that tomb was to no avail. When the time came, he came out. And he didn't need to roll away a stone to do it. What happens, chapter 28, verse 2, when the women come on Sunday morning, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. This angel came, rolled back the stone, he's sitting there on it, and inside there's, there's no body. But get this, verse 36, excuse me, verse 3, I should say. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They were absolutely, completely incapacitated and paralyzed and dumbfounded in fear. But evidently observing the whole thing. To some degree. I don't know whether they saw the angel or not. Now go down to verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests and all reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. What had happened? We just saw the stone rolled back, and there's nobody inside. In fact, the grave clothes are there completely wound as if there should be a body, but there's no body. And that stone was sealed, and we were guarding it the whole time until it was rolled back. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole the body while we slept. So they bribed the soldiers to tell a lie. And yet, if the soldiers had fallen asleep on guard duty, the Roman, the Roman sentence for a soldier who fell asleep was death. Why would they say that if they were going to die? Because they knew they wouldn't die, because the very authorities of Rome and of, of, of Jerusalem, the Jews, bribed them to say it. Now, if the disciples actually had stolen the body, and why could they never produce a body? All they had to do was find out where they took it. Even if indeed the soldiers fell asleep, which they didn't, and even if they stole the body somehow out of that tomb while it was still sealed, which they didn't, with all the resources of the Roman army and all the Jewish authorities in town and all of their officers, they would have found a body to debunk the resurrection, and to prove their assertion if there was a body to be found, which there wasn't. 
There's even a theory that was propagated many, many hundreds of years later called the swoon theory that says, well, what really happened was Jesus wasn't really dead. And he just fainted. So they thought he was dead and they put him in the tomb. And he, he kind of revived in the cool of the tomb and he came out. Now, after all he'd been through, the scourging, the crucifixion, the spear, and yet somehow he has the strength to wake up in that, stu- that tomb, roll back that heavy stone without any medical attention, completely survive and revive, and walk past all those soldiers. And by the way, wouldn't someone know what had happened? Wouldn't the soldiers have witnessed it if he somehow did that? Then there's the theory that, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb in the, in the early morning darkness. But all of these things are debunked by the very fact that Jews could never produce a body. Although they had done everything humanly possible to secure the body in the tomb. The historical evidence and what happened here argues for nothing else but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we have the eyewitness testimony, which confirms his resurrection. Go to chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. We have a a, a little bit of the entire record here. Uh, Verse 1 says, Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. Well, that's when they encountered the uh, open tomb, the stone rolled back, and the angel... And uh, the guards are struck, they are totally incapacitated. Verse 5, And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek, who, I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. He says, Come and see the place where you lay. Then he says, Go quickly, go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen. Verse 8, And they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. And as they went... To tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. At chapter 15, verse 4. Remember, he died according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And then it says, and he arose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, what's the confirmation? Burial confirmed his death. What's the confirmation for his resurrection? Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. That's exactly the, the time in which he appeared to the many on the mount. Of whom the greater part, says Paul, remain to the present when he wrote 1 Corinthians, but some have fallen asleep. And then verse 7, I don't know if we put that up there. He goes on to talk about James, his half-brother, not James the disciple, and, uh, and then himself, who also saw the risen Christ. So the fact that he was seen over and over again, over 40 days, multiple times, in multiple situations and circumstances, sometimes... In rooms that were locked and guarded, he suddenly was there. The empty tomb, and then the eyewitness testimony. All this argues for the truth that it all happened just as the Scripture says. 
And so again, we're reminded. Prophetic fulfillment, historical record, they both argue conclusively for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember Lionel Lucklow's statement. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves no room for doubt. So why? Why do we have those doubts from time to time? Oh, I don't think we struggle with the facts. We've accepted the facts. We've accepted Christ. Those of us that know him, I trust you all do. But there's that emotional doubt that afflicts us from time to time when we wonder, well, what if? What if he doesn't really love me? What if he hasn't really meant those promises to me? What, what, what if this isn't true? Or what if I'm not really saved? What if uh, I, I've somehow lost it all? Those hard knocks in life can produce that emotional response. Those are our, our feelings governing our thoughts coming out. And we have to overcome our feelings by bringing our mind into line with the truth. We know and we need reminded of and we need to have confirmation from over and over, oftentimes in life. And again, Paul wrote in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. We reaffirm our faith by going back to the record, the historical record, the prophetic fulfillment, all the other proofs, the many infallible proofs of not only the gospel, but many other things. It is our foundation. We cannot let our feelings, our emotions govern our thinking. We have to let the scriptures govern our thinking and reconfirm our faith. And the Holy Spirit will reconfirm it as we take that root in that process. 